welcome back to episode two of the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. With me, Lisa, the author and creator of Lab in Every Lesson, a student-centered strategy for science teaching. Now, me personally, remember, I teach chemistry, but I firmly believe that my method can be applied to every science area, and there are so many those of you in middle school who teach across the range of sciences, and those of you in the high school who are teaching more specific sciences, ecology, environmental, and green design, and um, forensic science, perhaps. And then our standbys, our, our go-tos, biology, chemistry, physics, earth science, and physical science. I really believe that Um, this method encapsulates them all. But this podcast is not about my methodology. This podcast currently is a book study on where I began exploring how I would craft the lab in every lesson strategy. And that is using the text, Visible Learning for Science, What Works Best to Optimize Student Learning in grades K through 12, The authors on this are John L. Marode, Douglas Fisher, Nancy Frey, and John Hattie. We're going to jump right into this today, and I fear I'm not going to cover much, but that's the point, right? I want to give you some of my, the importance here is not to read you the book, but to give you my insights and my perspective on some of the really critical features I think you know, they presented because naturally, I mean, I get a book. There are some books, many books, most books I purchase on my Kindle and I read them on my iPad. But when I get workbooks, like that I might, I have some notion that I might be able to go back and use as a reference tool, I always buy them hard copy. And I always color them, all kinds of pretty neon highlighter colors. So I know exactly where I want to go back and share with you the big points. So we're going to jump in. We are on page two in the introduction where the authors set out three kind of very obvious ideas. And those ideas are that one, we can do things in our classroom that have a negative influence on learning. Two, we can do things in our classroom that have a very small influence on learning. Or three, we can do things that have a very large influence on learning. Now, you're listening today because you're a rock star. You are a rock star teacher who wants to get the biggest bang for your buck. You set out to educate and guide young minds, and you're looking for the best way to do that. You're not punching your time card. You're not just getting through to the next holiday or the summer. You are interested in really achieving results, and really fulfilling a bigger purpose. Maybe right now, your assessment data is poor. Maybe your classroom engagement and basic participation in activities or assignments is low. Maybe you desire more deep, trusting relationships with your students. All of these described my plate when I was in perhaps your situation struggling to find what it might be that could reinvent my practice and change outcomes. I needed different outcomes. I think of myself as an ambitious person. 
If you listen to my first episode podcast, you know where I've been, where I came from, and my educational uh, experiences and how I came to teaching. And just fundamentally, I mean, I'm, I'm out for something. Sometimes I don't even know what it is, honestly. <laughs> Big question mark there. What am I after and why am I after it? I don't know, but the ambition is there. I am always after excellence in every facet of life, which can become very stressful. <laughs> but yet year after year in my classrooms now, I've been teaching 11 years. It's my 11th year. I am hardly an emeritus teacher but I would consider myself kind of a veteran, especially given the fact that I'm teaching all those years in the online classroom, which is so new, that there are really no even best practices for it. So I'm also hard on myself. <laughs> you, you might get that message from listening to these podcasts. Uh, but I really, I want you to share in my plate. I want you to know that if this is you, you are not the only one experiencing this, hardly. It sometimes feels that way, doesn't it? Anyway, year after year, I was experiencing waning participation during class. Assessment data that did not, I thought, reflect the effort I was putting forth. And I really struggled to be able to have meaningful conversations with support staff, other team members, and families about their students' abilities. Not their grades or their progress. I could pull that up on the screen and reiterate it their true abilities. Now, I think at this point, it's important for you to know how is I teaching. <laughs> I always wanted to be the inquiry-based teacher. When I went through my teaching uh, certification and I wrote all of these papers on, you know, different positions, I realize now looking back that they were kind of, they felt like, they feel like they were pipe dreams. I knew what I wanted long ago, but to actually do it is a whole nother can of worms, right? And I'll talk a little bit in a little bit about my cooperating teacher who was a dear. She was a dear. I loved her. But she is my biggest exposure to another another teacher and the way people do things. And the, the few, maybe four or five other teachers in that department at that school. But with her guidance and with the constraints of this new online platform in which I was plunked, I did not heavily go after inquiry. I settled for and resorted to direct instruction, which... I relied upon as more of a, it, I relied upon like polling results. You know, here's what's your answer, A, B, C, D, give me a green check, a red X, say something to me in the chat as a conversation that we were having, me and my students. And so it's no wonder I didn't know about them personally. I didn't know what they could each individually do. It's no wonder that my data was bad. <laughs> and it's no wonder that some kids just got bored. I mean, it really wasn't an exciting place to be. Yet in my mind, my job is to teach chemistry. At the end of every day, I'm looking to see, did they learn it? And my assessment data is showing they didn't learn it. So then I'm not good at my job. And that's not okay with me. Did I mention that I'm hard on myself? Way hard on myself. But 
you know, I try to make excuses too. <laughs> Maybe I'm looking at the wrong data and I got to tell you, I still do this. Maybe if I take out those students who I know are going through a rough time and just can't focus on schoolwork or otherwise for some reason aren't even trying, then surely the data for the rest of the sh students will show like good things. They're learning, right? But it didn't in every case. And then what? Well, at least I know from working with them closely where exactly they're faltering. No, think again. I didn't work with them closely at all. So I didn't have that going for me either. I can be sure that I was having a small influence on their learning, but I couldn't settle for that. I can accept, and I do accept, that I won't probably find the holy grail to lasting science learning and education, chemistry learning and education, but I'm not willing to accept minimal gains. And that's where I start. So if you're in that same boat, you're in the right place. And you also might want to check out my free training that's in my community. You can sign up for it on my webpage, um, which is not actually published yet, but it'll be there soon, depending on when you're reading this uh, or listening to this. Anyway, I'll take you through the same type of reflection I did and, and exactly the specifics I looked at and things that I decided I need to ch needed to change around. But for now, I want to move on and springboard from that into how this author and this text really, uh, you know, spoke to me and addressed all those concerns and started to shine lights on my deficiencies it was actually on page two, the same page that we have those three pretty obvious ideas about our influence on our students, where this book, the author pretty much summarizes the whole book for us, for me, by indicating that classrooms where teachers see learning through the eyes of their learners, and learners see themselves as their own teachers, provide the greatest learning environments. Let me say that again. Classrooms where teachers see learning through the eyes of their learners and learners see themselves as their own teachers provide the greatest learning environments. I don't know if that feels heavy for you, but that was like big, huge red flag light bulb moment for me. I looked through the eyes of my students and I was bored stiff. Yes, I teach online, but I never, ever wanted to be the boring teacher. <laughs> and in my mind, teaching online is not an excuse for being boring. When I read this, I realized I had so much yet to learn just about how to teach effectively, let alone how to modify that for my learners in my unique environment. And I'll go on to say here, the year I implemented my lab in every lesson strategy, I was only maybe six or eight weeks in teaching a lesson and another teacher in the department asked to um, visit and observe. And he's very outgoing, very similarly ambitious teacher. And afterward, he shared with me some commentary that was kind of, you know, it, uh, I, it put me in a vulnerable position. Um, where he indicated that, you know, his message was, your class was awesome. 
I am not the teacher I want to be. This is not the teacher I want to be. He didn't come out and say, you're the teacher I want to be. <laughs> but it seeing something else done so differently, I, I think made him realize the room for improvement and how it just is so easy to settle into the easy. Because being very effective in your classroom is not easy. And that's pretty much what this book talks about. The remainder of the paragraph on page two goes on to explain that students in this learning environment, one where they uh, see themselves as their own teachers, have students actively learning, capable of planning the next steps, and aware of how to implement feedback. Now, time out. If you stand at the front of the classroom and you're given a script and taking a bow at the end while students dutifully take notes in a worksheet, they're not getting that much opportunity to even receive feedback, let alone implement feedback. If their feedback is the red pen on their research paper or their homework, that just might not be enough for them to even do that last piece, to even implement feedback, let alone be aware of how to do it on their own. For me, all of those things, actively learning, capable of planning their next steps and aware of how to implement feedback, that is, com that is the essence of student-centered. And the book is not called Student-Centered Learning. It's not. It's called Visible Learning. You know what? And I feel that if you were to watch my classroom sessions, visit my classroom, and focus on me and my role, you would not think much learning is getting done because it's just not what the average person thinks of a teacher doing. And we'll talk more about that at another time. But I'd never seen an environment like this in action where students could, took control of anything. So I didn't know how to do it. The only observation I'd done of any other teacher, as I mentioned, was with my cooperating teacher in that period before you obtain your teaching certi certification. You know, in Pennsylvania, you do it for about three months. And I had been assigned to a teacher who, she was so similar to me. She was older, nearing retirement, in fact. I was already 28 I think when I went to do my teaching assignment and actually there was, here's the short side story. There were no teachers that would have been available or willing, I guess, at that district, in and around that district at the time to take me on. But And she said to me that she cringed. <laughs> she was by far the most experienced there, but she cringed at the thought of nurturing and mentoring a young teacher and then was relieved to find out I was a little bit older because perhaps, you know, a fresh out of college student teacher is a little bit more challenging than to um, lead someone who's already kind of professionally established and, you know, the things that come with age. <laughs> but anyway, she and I had personal, similar personal backstories. She also worked as a scientist. She had a few children. She decided that teaching was most convenient for their family life. And so she got her teaching certificate and had been teaching then for 30 years. 30 years. Students loved her. 
And, you know, I think they weren't doing backflips or anything, but they really liked her. She was a very likable woman. Yet at the same time, my vibe from her and part of the reason I liked her was because she was similar to some of my favorite teachers in high school. And, you know, we did a professional development one time at my school where they asked us to share who our favorite teachers were in high school and why. And mine were the ones who had the highest expectations of me. They weren't the ones who were, um, you know, like goofy, <laughs> though we had plenty of those really silly out there kind of crazy. They weren't the ones who were lackadaisical. They were the ones who came at you and really pushed you and you know they meant business. And so she did. She had that perfect balance of having very high expectations, but she was so amicable and so motherly that she always, you know, you never felt any judgment from her or anything. So she was an excellent role model for me at a time in my life, which was very uncertain. You know, I was changing careers and I wasn't, was not sure that this was going to fit either. And I had never led a classroom and I wasn't comfortable being watched. So she was wonderful. Shout out to her. But she had very high expectations for her students. And she was rigorous in the amount she intended to cover throughout the year. You know, like when when I when we are often pacing and planning our scope and sequence for the year in my current school, you know, another teacher will say, well, we never got past gas laws ever, ever. And she, my, my co-op teacher, she finished a whole year of chemistry, like thermo, kinetics, organic, nuclear, you name it, everything on the applied side, she did it. And she, I was in that second semester with her and she made no bones about, we have to do this. And it wasn't just her expectation, it was for the entire department. It's a very good school district too, I should mention. But even though her amount was rigorous, the pace was rigorous, I, Looking back, her methods were not rigorous at all. She used transparency notes. Yes, I said transparency notes and a projector. Noting to me once that the teacher down the hall uses all this, quote, techie stuff, which was basically PowerPoint, but that wasn't her style. And yes, I got to watch the one teacher down the hall use his PowerPoint once, but that was just transparencies on a PowerPoint. It was a different way of leading direct instruction. There was another teacher there on the older, uh, more experienced side, and he had a very storytelling style, but still direct instruction. They were all relying upon only direct instruction. And this packet of organized, guided notes for students to follow along. They also had once a week lab. You know, that's pretty par for the course, right? Uh, for a science course, most science courses, except perhaps maybe electives, have labs. The, this is a pretty rich school district, you know? So they had everything they could have wanted. They had a, a, someone to prep the labs for them even. <laughs> the teachers out there, shout out, that exists. Some of you listening may not have lab. In my cyber school, we do not have lab. They used to send students boxes of materials and they were always incomplete and they always relied on some household supplies that some students didn't have. It created a very big equitable issue. But um, in any case, that's, that's also a pain point, you know. 
for me. And that and this was one part of how did I take this text and the information in it and my experiences and develop lab in every lesson. Well, why are we only doing lab on lab day? Why? <laughs> and I'll just let that gestate with you because that's a theme of me and my approach. When I started at my cyber school, which was only less than six months after I left my cooperating experience, I tried to do inquiry, but I did not know how and no one there was doing inquiry. So what I resulted, what I ended up doing was gamifying things. You know, we played a lot of bingo and Jeopardy and memory matching but it was always with only a few volunteer students and the remainder of the group watched. And, you know, right now it's useful for me to interject in case you haven't experienced this during the 2020 pandemic year. Students on the receiving end of online school could have a very, very easy tendency toward watching class as if it were TV. And for those of you teaching math or any kind of applied course content, you know that that's just not going to fly. Whether you give them guided notes or not, you watch and it does, it just doesn't work. (laughs) It just doesn't work. So I couldn't even check that first box of actively learning, let alone the remainder of Um, being capable of planning next steps and aware of feedback. I mean, everything was missing for me. Maybe you're not at that point. Maybe you have a plethora of experience. You've dipped your toe in all kinds of different uh, waters and strategies and you have a better grounding than I did. If so, wonderful. That's great. And also, shout out to you if you are a heavily direct instruction teacher. Direct instruction is not bad. In fact, the authors call this out somewhere, page four. The authors call out direct instruction as the process of setting learning intentions, making them transparent for students, demonstrating them with modeling, evaluating if they understand using formative assessment strategies and tying it all together with closure. So if that sounds like what you do, that's best practices. And I would say my cooperating teacher did that. I don't really recall her setting up setting aside learning intentions or sharing with them standards or goals for every day other than to say, this is what we're learning today. Here's the topic du jour. Um, Demonstrating with modeling, you know, teaching chemistry, that was something that comes easy because you're problem solving using math or you are physically modeling using models that you can hold in your hands. You can take a pause and give everybody a problem to work on and walk around the room and check out formative assessment and then you can tie it all up, right? Easy peasy. Those are best practices. That's what my principal looks for in my classroom, my instructional coach. It's something we should be doing. But is there something better? And like I told you, I just don't settle for okay. I go for the gold. (laughs) And that's why I'm here with you. This text discusses learning as a process students do. That learning is a process, not an event. And I'm far enough down my 
rabbit hole to probably take some measure of that for granted. But I've worked with teachers in my school whom I think that would be a total mind shift for. So if you think about like asking, you know, this happens at our dinner table a lot at the end of the day. We'll ask our kids, what did you learn today? Well, I have young kids, six and nine. And for those of you parents out there who've had those same conversations, you know that that's a tough answer to get extracted at the young age. And I don't have a whole lot of faith that it's going to get very much more detailed because the question is just too big. I've begun to believe that maybe not having a specific answer is a good thing. Because when we ask that question, we are asking what happened today. What was the event that you learned? And hopefully they're not learning about lions today and tigers tomorrow and elephants the next day and bears the next day, right? I mean, in the elementary level, we're talking science. They're learning about all those things as part of something bigger. They're learning about them because they are intertwined with biomes and habitats and life cycles and it's a process. It's not an event. It's a real mind shift. Write that one down. It's good. By providing students with challenging tasks, they're charged with surface learning content, then going deeper, and finally transferring it. These phases don't have to happen separately. Single learning experiences can provide all three levels of learning, but not without challenge. And that's the key word for me. It's my takeaway. Challenge. To plan a challenging learning activity, it has to be specific, intentional, and purposeful planning to create learning experiences like that and outcomes that have a large effect on student learning. Not just a large effect on assessment data. This can be especially challenging when we consider what Graham Newthall suggested in his text, The Hidden Lives of Learners. Now, I personally haven't read this book, but it is on my to-do list, and I will report back. Perhaps we'll do a, a study on that someday. But this reference is found on page seven. You can tell we are moving at a lightning speed through this book. <laughs> the authors of Visible Learning quote him, noting that he found through his 500 hours of classroom video analysis and audio that students already know 60% of what we expect them to learn in our classrooms. I mean, pause for dramatic effect and maybe hit the pause button. <laughs> Students know 60% of what we expect them to learn. And a large portion of what happens in our classrooms, 80% is outside the awareness of the classroom teacher. This is something I tested in my small realm of possibility. I included the results in my free course, Adopting a Student-Centered Science Classroom, 
for lesson planning and I forget the the formal title, which isn't published yet, but it's coming soon. I promise. Get on my email list and you will find out all about that. It's true, folks. (laughs) They have so much prior knowledge, no matter what level you teach at, that we do not need to teach them the minutiae. They can use the minutia to get to that next level. Having my own children has helped me reframe all this information so as not to get overwhelmed by it and feel defeated. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. It probably took me, I don't know, an hour to read chapter one and the introduction of this book, but probably the rest of the week to truly digest it. Because I did feel overwhelmed at first. But, you know, sitting back and thinking about my own parenting experience, my own kids has really helped. As a teacher in my home, it's been my responsibility to teach my kids how to complete physical tasks. Like holding a utensil, walking, and talking. Those learning situations were all very active. I could do all the demonstrating I wanted, but the only way they'd accomplish those feats was to do it themselves. And try, try, try again after repeated failures. Okay. Duly noted. I getcha. You riding my wave. You remember the old adage, do as I say, not as I do? Those of you out there who are listening as parents have undoubtedly been guilty of that at least once, if not once daily. That's me over here. Think about it. Our children might have learned to use their eating utensil to get their food from their plate to their mouth. But how fast they eat or how messy they eat might just be taken from cues they picked up on just from repeated exposure, from constantly seeing you do it. All those habits they have, they come from somewhere sometimes, not all the time. They learned to walk. Do your kids run in the house? I mean, again, my kids are small. Some of you probably have kids that are 16 and 19. Mine are 6 and 9. Mine run in the house. Despite what I feel have been my best efforts at setting rules and providing discipline, my children obviously have learned it's okay to run in the house because they just won't stop. So this business about students learning other things right under our noses That can't really be surprising. And I don't have a physical classroom. But just as your students might be taking body language clues from everyone in the room and enduring the social aspects of learning, mine in the virtual setting are sometimes preoccupied with the internal chatter of their own mind because they're the only one there to listen to it. Or preoccupied by what's going on around them personally at home. So I mentioned in episode one, don't hate on me for being an online school teacher. (laughs) Maybe you don't, but I'm used to it. I have to come out defensively because we are not loved in the state of Pennsylvania by um, by our legislators and all groups involved. However, we are loved by our families. And it's a real thing to consider that the students who are with us are with us because some aspect of the conventional system failed them and they have special needs. But, 
you know, and I don't mean special ed special needs. I mean, they just need to recover from something or just get a better experience. And uh, just because they go to their home, they don't leave all their challenges aside. So no, I don't have a lot of classroom management to deal with. But do I? You know, it's exactly the, the purpose I'm talking to you today is because I had to overcome whatever I'm competing with on that other side of the screen. So let's see, how are we on time? Ooh, I'm going long. One more, one more concept I want to plant here. Shouldn't take me too long. Thinking about how important it might be to go deep and to transfer right? These authors throughout the remainder of this book you're going to read about, in fact, on page seven is one of the first references to their taxonomy, which is three levels of learning, surface deep and transfer. How important is it to go deep and to transfer, to go deep with our students so they are able to transfer? I would ask you the question, why do you love being a science teacher? When I chose science to study as a major in college, it was plainly because I was good at it and scientists make a lot of money, <laughs> or so I thought. I stayed in science, though, because it was very methodical. It was very logical. It was very stepwise, and it required problem solving. That's the way my mind works. It, was it just complemented me and my personality, my style. Even now, I always tell my students that chemistry is a doing course, in that most of the content requires them to think through to a solution. They don't have tests that are full of vocabulary. They have to solve problems. And in that way, it can be very quite different from the course that typically precedes it, which is biology. Now, I'm not hating on biology, and I don't know the standards very well. I can think of a few areas at least where you could um, be very active. But my recollection of the course is that it's very defined. There aren't many variables. Ecology is what it is, and food chains are what they are, and the cell is what it is, and it's important to know where all the parts are and what they all do. But there aren't many what happens if scenarios. That doesn't mean you guys are gypped. <laughs> if we're incorporating the skills, the scientific method skills, into our science class, observing, hypothesizing, analyzing into every lesson, every science content becomes a doing science. And that's the basis of my method, lab in every lesson. If we're conditioning our students daily to go through that logical process for problem solving, then they are better prepared to tackle real life problems that require the same logical processes. The authors of this book reminded me of this. We are preparing our students for a life beyond our walls to be informed, active members of society. They aren't all going to be chemists. They aren't all going to be biologists. Nobody's ever going to dissect another worm or a frog or a cat. They don't need to know necessarily where all the organs are on a daily basis. <laughs> but they are going to have to be informed active members of society that need to make decisions as complex as those related to their health and their family finances and those as seemingly innocuous as driving down the road, being a good driver, 
Where are all the other cars? What do the signs say? How much time do I have, right? Making purchases at the store, being a good consumer, purchasing brands that support certain initiatives or purchasing for value, knowing some of the backstory that happens in relabeling products, things like that, or supporting various aspects of their community. Even some of them someday serving as personnel on our very own school boards. We're living in an age of fake news (laughs) and are learning how to teach our kids the difference between fact and fiction, reality and fantasy, while reinforcing right and wrong as we point out what we believe to be truth versus lies. They have to learn to do this on their own without our support. Our future as old geezers depends on their ability to do this in a logical, rational, unbiased kind of way. Our jobs as teachers are hugely influential and so much more important than we might realize, especially now. And that's where my passion comes from. And that's where I hope I can inspire your passion as well. Because it sounds so dorky to say the scientific method is where it's at. Go scientific method. (laughs) But truly, underneath all the content, imagine if a student comes up through middle school and high school constantly being asked to do the same things, observe, hypothesize, analyze, Draw conclusions. We have prepared then some very sophisticated, very capable, very active, and very aware students who are responsible for all that will go on after we are no longer, you know, around to guide them. So I'm going to wrap up now that you've heard me carry on for much, much too long. And we have only gotten to page uh, seven think that was what it was I told you I suggested this book study because I have so much to say about it it spoke to me and my goal in this podcast is to try to articulate that to you to try to inspire you to something bigger and something better so I'm going to end today to plant the seed about our, our episode next time which will be all about how we are able to determine if we've accomplished these goals of creating of creating visible learners who are responsible and capable of planning next steps, they know how to use feedback to make themselves better, make their learning better. We know assessments aren't going to tell us that information, so what is? The authors suggest effect size is a data-dependent feature we can rely on to guide our planning. They define effect size as a magnitude or a size of a given effect, but I define effect size as basically bang for your buck. It's value. It's return on investment, if you want to think about it that way. And it is described in the beginning of chapter one, so that's what I'll be hitting you with next time. Through 1,400 studies of studies, those are called meta-analyses, comprising 80,000 total studies and 300 million students, John Hattie, one of the authors of this book, determined that teaching strategies with an effect size greater than or equal to 0.4 will produce one year worth of learning. He presents a graphic that resembles the speedometer of a car with that 0.4 effect size value in the 12 o'clock position at the top center. 
every strategy under that is having a low influence of learning and everything over that being in the zone of desired effects, potentially producing more than one year's worth of learning. Folks, that's that criteria, you know, to bring this full circle at the very beginning, those three very obvious bullet points. That's how we have a very large influence on learning. When we incorporate into our classrooms those strategies with an effect size greater than 0.4. And it's here where the point is made, which drew me to these authors originally. In a blog post random somewhere, I read it. A lot of things work. In fact, in that blog post, they said everything works. (laughs) A lot of things work when we assume we can't have negative growth or we consider all growth to be positive growth. But when we reframe, when we want to be rock stars, when we want to, when we are after excellence, we're aiming for the best possible growth, we find that there are more impactful strategies we could be using. So in my next episode, we'll consider some of those challenging tasks with high effect sizes. Um, They can be found, if you're following along with me in the text, on page 18. I'll talk through all my experience with those and how I... um, used or lost, <laughs> used or lost some of those, how to differentiate them, super important, and specifically how I've differentiated some of my challenging tasks using the method proposed by the authors of Visible Learning, all in an effort to create and deploy a lab in every lesson. For more information on the lab in every lesson strategy, don't forget to visit the website www.labineverylesson.com. From there, you can join our community where you can comment and provide your feedback to this podcast, as well as visit my store and read my blog. Thank you folks for listening. I'll see you back here next time.